My daughters both attended an all-girls school in Toronto called Bishop Strong. A school that believed as thick as the glass ceiling might be, that with the right education, with women understanding participation, collaboration, negotiation, creation, innovation, that that would be a sledgehammer. That they could have the confidence and conviction to blaze the trail they wanted to pursue, regardless of barriers or biases or gender inequalities. I sat on that board for eight years. I saw firsthand the value of education from my daughters and many others. But as you listen to this episode today, I want you to imagine living in a world where girls are denied an education. Instead of uh, girls can do anything, you're run by a Taliban government that wants girls to do nothing. And if you had no education, could you dream or would you just become a commodity, a carcass, something in society that was easily discarded? My guest today was denied an education at age six. She got to go back to school when the Americans invaded Afghanistan. She went on to the States to study and you'll soon learn came back to make sure that other girls never had that door slammed in her face. And then when it did get slammed in her face as the Taliban took over, she refused to change her mission because she believes that the only way to transform societies, the only way to push out tyrants, the only way to put women on an equal playing field is to give them the education they deserve. For me, the goal has always been Uh, staying focused on our mission. Our mission was, is, and always will be to educate Afghan girls. I deeply believe in the transformative power of investment in girls' education. That has always been my North Star, if you will. This is a very special show, and my guest is Shabana Basij Rasa, and this is her story. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Shabana, welcome to uh, Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me. Now, you know firsthand what it feels like to be denied an education. 1990, a young girl, the Taliban take over, banning girls' education, forbidding women to go out without a male chaperone. My first question is, why were the Taliban so against women being educated, being equal? I believe they were and they continue to be fearful of educated women uh, because uh, educated women are uh, the best antidote we have to extremism and Taliban-like ideology. What I loved hearing about is your parents, former general, former educator, they refused to accept this situation. They're saying there's no possible way this is going to happen to my two daughters. So what did they do to ensure that you had an education as opposed to sort of being locked away in a cave? I'm one of uh, four girls in the family. Two of us at that time were uh, the right age for um, schooling. Um, my oldest sister had just finished high school and my youngest sister was too young to to be in school. For both of my parents, um, the greater risk was uh, raising their daughters without an education. Both of my parents are remarkable people, and I know I'm biased, but I also know that there are a lot of uh, families, there are a lot of parents um, like my parents in Afghanistan who truly believe in the power of uh, education for all their children, not just their sons. That's what my parents believed. They could not have imagine um, undoing the progress of their own lifetime 
both of them being um, the first uh, in their families, my father being the first person in his family and my mother being um, the first uh, woman along with her sisters to be educated. They both had seen firsthand the absolutely transformational power of um, education in their own lives and couldn't in any way see their daughters grow up without it. And most importantly, they they saw that as an effective way for us to be of service to others. It's almost like Nelson Mandela saying that education is the world's greatest weapon. And he meant that in the most positive sense, that if we're going to change the world, we have to do so through education. But what did you do? Like, how did they go about educating you? Like, when you know, the Taliban shuts the schools down, what did you do? They completely banned girls from going to public schools. Uh, they uh, prohibited women from working outside the home. There were these remarkable, brave women in Afghanistan and across across the country who decided uh, that they would uh, secretly educate uh, girls. A number of these underground secret schools uh, started to operate. And given the, uh, you know, unity among people and especially the, the community of people who uh, believed in educating their daughters, for the most part, they were able to um, remain anonymous. Uh, small communities formed to protect the identities of uh, the individuals involved, as well as the brave women and their families who decided to uh, open their homes and turn them into uh, schools for girls, by doing so quite literally invited risk to all members of their family. Unfortunate uh, instances when these uh, secret schools were uncovered by the Taliban, um, oftentimes the consequences were quite severe, beheading of teachers, punishing of family members, girls and of families of the teachers uh, for essentially disobeying the Taliban uh, law. And yet uh, there were uh, some families who accepted all of that risk, all of that risk, including uh, my family. Do you remember that sense of risk when you were at a young age? I mean, was it like every noise outside a, a classroom or a house could be the last noise you would hear it. I mean, did you sense that as a child or was it more that risk was contained within the adults and they just tried to motivate you to uh, to get educated? I think it was a little bit of both because when I look back at my childhood, I do remember having some really fun and fun memories of both my childhood and attending that secret school. Taking risk had become such a normal part of the routine as well, but at times, at times, sure, it was uh, scary. Um, but uh, being so young, and uh, my older sister who was with me, um, she uh, shielded me from so much of knowing that as well. And and then you know the adults, there was no pretense that this was all safe and happy. Um, we had a one that I attended with my sister. Um, was run by a um, woman who was a high school principal before the Taliban took over. And she had a primary role in that secret school to um, keep track of when girls and the number of girls that would go in and out of her house. Uh, at what time, she always made sure that there was a good amount of uh, break in between traffic in and out of her house. Um, and then she always reminded us about the risk to her, to her family, to all of us and to our families and how we needed to be careful and 
what to do if we were caught. From what I understand, that there was at times you even had to dress up as a boy. How does that all factor into such a young girl's mind? Because it seems so real to me. I mean, my daughter's problems compared to what you were facing every day. How did you find a way to to process that as a young age? Well, you know, I think I was probably um, too young to fully comprehend uh, the consequences of that. You know, it wasn't a super secret uh, mission to um, everyone in my secret school, everyone in my neighborhood knew I was a girl. It was more of a, it was a function of as my sister and I walked uh, between our house and the secret school, um, she had to wear a burqa whenever she was outside. And so it was a way of minimizing the attention that she would get. So I um, dressed as a boy to be her male chaperone. It gave me a whole set of uh, freedoms, um, especially at that time, that otherwise I wouldn't have access to, you know, being able to go outside and play, um, you know, with other children in the streets and um, just, you know, just be... um, in so many ways, free. What have you taken with you from that time? What do you still carry in your knapsack that you go, no matter what happens to me in life, I can draw on this lesson that I learned as a young girl dressing up as a boy to chaperone her older sister to school? One is investment in education, especially in the education of girls, um, is one of the most transformational things to witness. My personal uh, life is a great example of that, but I see that over and over. A lot of people uh, who have done um, deep research in various uh, fields, how do we eradicate poverty from the world? How do we effectively reverse global warming and so on, have uh, independently arrived at um, the conclusion that investment in girls' education has one of the highest return rates. So that's one of the lessons that I carry forward. And that's why I am so deeply committed to the work that we do today. But, you know, there are a few others. Persistence pays. It's it's quite powerful when you know uh, what that means. And then there's this uh, larger curiosity and a reminder to self of you don't know what you don't know. For for me as a little girl, uh, what that meant was I didn't know it was abnormal to do what I did. I didn't know. Um, access to education in other parts of the world is seen as a most, as one of the most basic human rights. I didn't know there is uh, a world in which girls can safely uh, attend school. And so all of that under the umbrella of you don't know what you don't know. Do you ever look at society where education is taken for granted? Does it frustrate you at times that people don't value it? It doesn't frustrate me. Actually, I I draw inspiration from that, especially when girls are able to take their education for granted, because that's how it should be. Every child, no matter where they live in the world, should be able to take their education for granted. I understand uh, when educators and parents uh, express frustration that a certain population of children take their education so far granted that they, to a point of not understanding its value. But when you compare that to what happens on, on the opposite side, you don't wish that on anyone anywhere in the world. It's 2023. Um, the most basic access to education should be taken for granted. With all the advancement that we have made as a humanity, access to education should be like 
breathing air. We have so much technology. We have, we have an abundance of mm, curricula uh, approaches, innovation. It is quite an embarrassment for all of us um, that we have millions and millions of children globally, not just in a place like Afghanistan, but globally who are deprived of access um, to education. And we need a massive mindset change on the part of uh, those who are fortunate in order to be able to um, make education accessible um, to those uh, who don't have it. And yet, quite frankly, we need this not for the sake of purely educating those uh, children and those girls, but because we need their help in addressing some of the most pressing issues of our time. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Agility, adaptation, resilience. These concepts are core to everything that solar is. We have faced the uncertainty of what might be, and we have turned it into the certainty of what will be. My guest today is Shabana Basij Rashah. She's fighting for what many of us take for granted, the ability to attend school regardless of gender. So in 2001, I want to sort of move the story forward a little bit because there's so much ground we have to cover, and especially talking about your school. But the Taliban falls to the U- after the U.S. invasion, and you could freely attend school. What kind of time period are we talking about? Did that happen like much sooner than anybody imagined, and suddenly it was just this roaring breath of fresh air, or was this something that sort of unfolded over many months? It happened quite fast, and the only people who saw it uh, as the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan uh, was um, the Taliban and people who supported um, Taliban ideology, which is within Afghanistan an incredibly small fraction of people. Uh, The reality for people in Afghanistan and on the ground was that uh, people welcomed the United States and and the international community to Afghanistan. Um, People saw the United States and, and the international community as uh, allies, people saw and welcomed it as an opportunity to change things around for the country and for the people. Um, and, you know, we, we were already seeing changes in terms of um, girls' access to uh, education. 2001, uh, immediately after 9-11, things changed um, dramatically. Um, that was in September. And then um, shortly after that, um, the Taliban regime collapsed. Um, there was an interim government that was formed because the Taliban had burned uh, records for all female students. The interim government uh, made an announcement uh, inviting girls to go to the nearest public school in their neighborhood uh, to take a placement test and place into whatever grade they felt comfortable in. Thousands and thousands of girls poured into schools um, in an effort to receive an education to or to go back to school where they had left off six years um, prior to that date. You saw uh, several generations of girls who were much older, but in lower grades um, because they had so many years of catching up to do. We had huge shortage of uh, female teachers, but every year things were changing for the better. You had more and more um, people, especially women, uh, breaking into um, various fields um, previously not occupied by women, whether that was in politics or business or um, activism or civil society. Uh, we ended up with an incredibly robust civil society group. The, you know, freedom of press in Afghanistan was ranked as 
uh, one of the best in the region. There was great progress in the midst of all the insecurity and um, the Taliban remaining a um, powerful insurgent group. We ended up with a whole generation of young Afghans for whom the Taliban was uh, nothing but um, history. Um, they had never, ever lived under the Taliban regime and ruling. And um, that was quite refreshing to see um, that there were girls who were unafraid. So would you, from what I understand, that you're excelling as a student and a State Department program in the U.S. says, we would love to offer you to come to the United States and study for at least a year of high school. I was nominated by my school principal to participate in in the process. And, and the process entailed um, um, going through several rounds of uh, tests and interviews. And uh, I believe they had several thousands of students from all all over the country uh, participating in the initial rounds. And then they narrowed it down to um, 40 students each year, 20 boys and 20 girls from across the country to spend a year in the U.S. And it was, you know, early years of U.S.-Afghan relations um, post 9-11. And I was quite curious about uh, the United States and life in the United States as an Afghan visitor. And um, I saw it as a great opportunity um, to see um, what this was all about and, and took it and came to the U.S. And, uh, you know, it was um, 2005. Um, I was 15 and I was um, quite shocked in so many ways um, by, by the experience, but also um, had, a, had an incredible year. Um, as a student um, in the U.S. I mean, shocked, you just say that so softly. I have to believe the culture shock between the world you grew up with and coming to the United States. You must have been homesick. You must have been, there must have been some confusion. There must have been even, you know, the wrong side of racial remarks. It couldn't have been just a fantastic year. It had to be a combination of the two, I would imagine. I think because I came as an international student, I was not here as a refugee or an immigrant. Um, I was here as a as a visitor, as a guest, and that automatically uh, placed me in a very different category and also experience. Um, and I also viewed it as a one year experience. Um, time was limited. I had this uh, opportunity uh, to be able to make the most of it. I was homesick appropriately, and you know at that time we didn't have the ease of communication that we do right now, and so. Uh, conversation with family was quite limited, but I was determined to um, work on my English, um, you know, improve my uh, language and uh, make friends and um, try new things. And I did get a few uh, questions that initially uh, were quite confusing, but um, I didn't find them offensive. I just looked at them as curiosity and 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 then you know okay people aren't aware i didn't feel discriminated against um i had a really a great great time but a, a few things that shocked me um they were some of the remarkable differences between a um society that is developed that is prosperous has means and resources that is peaceful and that was the united states and uh, a society that I came from that was devastated by uh, years and years of uh, war. One of that was, I always assumed uh, that as a girl, 
uh, as a young girl who's lucky enough to go to school, uh, you always live with the fear of losing access to your education. And that was me. I always wondered if a regime like the Taliban would take back control of our country and, and make it impossible for me to go back to public school again. But when I came to the United States and engaged in conversation with girls, um, that idea was so foreign to them. They started asking me, like, why Why would I not go to school? Why? Uh, why? Why would I not go to school because I'm a girl? How does that make sense? And And because they were so unfamiliar with that fear um, that I found that so, so beautiful. And I wanted that for girls in Afghanistan. And then there were other aspects of, uh, you know, when you, when you are brought up uh, in a war-torn country, uh, you just can't even take the next day for granted. You can't, and at times you can't even take the next hour for granted. In terms of values and in terms of what ultimately people want, and desire for their children, I found so much similarity. Parents, whether they are Afghans or they're Americans, they all want the best for their children. They all want their um, families to be happy and united and gatherings uh, around Thanksgiving or other holidays reminded me of gatherings around our holidays, both the happiness of seeing each other, the family drama and et cetera, et cetera, all of it uh, felt normal and familiar. Who was your, the first friend that you had in the United States where each had curiosity and because of your differences, you could just take your relationship to a, to a level that you might not be able to if it was just your, the buddy you knew down next door? <laughs> this, this may, this may quite surprise you because, um, when I came uh, to the U.S. as part of a, uh, preparation, and I don't know who thought this was a beautiful idea, but uh, we watched a few, uh, a couple of movies uh, before coming to the United States. Uh, one was um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which uh, is interesting. But the second one was uh, this movie called Mean Girls. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know who thought it was a great idea to watch that movie, but uh, it was, it was, uh, quite horrifying to think that that could be the scene you walk into in, <laughs> in any public school. And so when I, when I had shared that with my host family and they thought it was, um, hilarious. And when, uh, when I went to the public school, um, this wonderful principal of the school, my host parents, uh, quite laughingly, um, told her about uh, what I thought of public schools and, and she, she thought it was, uh, she was horrified that that's what I thought of public schools. And she kind of took me under her wing. And the very first day of, uh, school, she took me, um, to a table, uh, in the dining, in the cafeteria of the school to, and introduced me to a group of these really, really wonderful young women who are just so amazing. And I found some great friendships in, uh, throughout the school, but particularly with that group of girls who, who are so inclusive and fun and kind and welcoming. Um, <laughs> and so, um, I, and then there were a number of international, uh, students, um, who are, uh, exchange students and visitors from all over the world, from, from France and Germany and Hong Kong and, uh, Thailand and other countries. And, um, we shared 
uh, being international students in 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 this um, public school in Wisconsin uh, together, and and they became another group of friends. You stay on, and you go to uh, Middlebury College in Vermont, I believe. Did your parents have an opportunity to come over and see you graduate? They didn't in my year, but that's because uh, I think by then uh, my parents, um, there are six of us um, and I'm the middle child. And at one point, all of us ended up studying uh, in the United States in in great schools. Um, and the year prior, um, they had come to the U.S. Uh, to attend my oldest sister's uh, graduation from college. And so that particular year, they didn't come. But uh, by then, we were able to share, you know, pictures and videos and call. And they were they were proud. Um, they were very happy for me as they were for all of my siblings. Um, but um, no, they weren't able to make it. When we return, Sola the school and Shabana the individual, their very existence is threatened when the Taliban reclaim power and not in years or months, what turns out to be days. Hi, it's Tony Chapman and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. I wanted to educate Afghan girls who would become educated Afghan women, who would then educate other girls, and all of them together over time, would build a new Afghanistan from the bottom up, and they would be among its leaders. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Shabana Basij Rasa. She considers herself an ordinary Afghan woman. Well, I happen to think she's extraordinary. You start a school called Sola. What made you want to do that? Because suddenly, you know, you're graduating in the United States, your sisters, your parents. I mean, life's pretty good. But now you're taking on something that I think is quite ambitious for someone that still hasn't quite graduated university. So I'm curious to hear the story. I think that the roots of Sola started a bit earlier in my college career. Um, my freshman year, my first year there, that was 2007. And the UN published a report that year that said only 6% of women in Afghanistan have a college degree. Uh, it was also the year, where, you know, I started my, my undergraduate degree, um, in this really prestigious, um, college, uh, undergrad, uh, liberal arts college in, in the United States, um, in Vermont called Middlebury College. And the president of, uh, the college that year uh, in, in his welcome remarks, um, reminded the freshman class that we were so fortunate and so lucky to be studying in a in a setting like like Middlebury because um, very few uh, Americans two or three percent Americans have access to this caliber of education and uh, referring to the liberal arts and I was so clueless to all of this that I started asking questions of myself you know where am I uh, what have I done to deserve this opportunity and understanding um, the already limited number of uh, women who had made it that far in their educational journey. I already knew that I was such a, um, I was entering a very small minority of privileged, educated women in Afghanistan. And this, I felt this enormous weight of um, both that privilege, but also the responsibility that came with it. 
And it was unsettling. It, um, you know, I was feeling extremely privileged and lucky and guilty. And uh, why me? And what next? And can I do, even do anything? And then uh, fortunately for me, I grew up and was raised by these two remarkable uh, parents who always emphasized the purpose of our education to be service to others. In many conversations with my parents and my family members, it was very clear that if I chose to stay in the United States and do whatever I wanted to do, there were thousands of equally and perhaps even more qualified people who could do that job. But um, if I chose to um, go back to Afghanistan and uh, no matter what I did, it meant there were very few people who could do um, what I did as well as I could do. That's what took me back to Afghanistan. Um, first, uh, it led to the uh, formation of SOLA. I co-founded SOLA as a freshman. Very small um, initiative. Um, initial years, the focus was to bring Afghan uh, young Afghan students uh, on scholarship opportunities to the U.S., um, initially U.S. and then Canada and later UK and elsewhere. And then from there, transition to colleges and universities and then go back to Afghanistan, where they would often be uh, one of the most uh, highly educated individuals in whatever profession they choose to be. And then when I graduated from college and went back to Afghanistan in 2011, it was also uh, around the same time the U.S. government announced a timeline to withdraw U.S. troops uh, from Afghanistan by 2014. And it did um, change the mood uh, for a lot of uh, Afghans who are studying in Western countries because they were even more fearful of returning to Afghanistan. They worried that with the um, anticipated withdrawal of U.S. troops, um, the Taliban would be emboldened and potentially take back control of the country. And so they didn't see a future for themselves. And I didn't want SOLA, our organization, to become a, a vehicle for brain drain. So I looked at what our, our responsibility was and what we could do better. And it was during this time that we transitioned uh, SOLA from a scholarship program to a boarding school in Afghanistan with the idea that we need to bring quality education to Afghanistan instead of sending talented people out of Afghanistan to access it. That's when we realized that we were setting up our country's first and only boarding school for girls. You're starting this, even though there's hints the Americans are going to withdraw, not even hints, they declare that they're going to pull their troops out. And with that, there's going to be a vacuum. And that turns out the Taliban are going to jump in on it. But it happens much sooner than anybody imagines. So if you could take us back to that time, because your school's running, it's vibrant, your dream's coming true. These are women that are going to lead Afghanistan, these are women that have got shining eyes and their hearts are beating and they believe in themselves. But at the same time, this dark cloud is looming. By August of 2021, we had nearly 100 girls attending SOLA in grades 6 through 11, representing 28 of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan. You would enter SOLA and it was a mini Afghanistan. Um, girls from uh, all the various ethnic groups um, and linguistic backgrounds and religious sects um, looking at each other as sisters. Um, there, This was a sisterhood in the making, and they were so very proud of each other. In April of 2021, the U.S. government made an announcement to unconditionally withdraw troops from Afghanistan, and I knew that it was 
going to be a matter of time before it would be irresponsible um, to operate a school for girls, uh, especially girls coming from some of the most remote parts of our country. And so uh, I was uh, really concerned about uh, one, the, primarily the safety um, and security of our students, but also the continuity of their learning. Uh, we exhausted many different possibilities and contingencies that we were exploring. And the one that made most sense because the climate uh, on the ground was such that we're left with more question marks than answers. Uh, we had no idea uh, what the discussions behind the closed doors with the Taliban were about, uh, whose rights were being compromised or given up on. People of Afghanistan, especially women, were not part of these conversations. And we all know by now uh, from um, many, many historic examples that when women are absent from any peace negotiations, um, there is no success. And while that was true then, it is especially something I'm alarmed about in the current uh, conversations when it comes to Afghanistan. So with all of that in mind, um, uh, I figured that the best option for our community and for our student was to engage in a study abroad program. I was looking mostly um, into neighboring countries for many reasons, logistically it made sense, affordable, etc., closer to Afghanistan, families being familiar with those countries. And uh, those a lot of those countries were already overwhelmed by the number of Afghans who were pouring into their doorsteps um, seeking refuge uh, from the increased uncertainty in Afghanistan. And so we weren't making much progress. And in a really, really um, random instance, we uh, were able to find Rwanda as a, as a, as a host nation. And uh, we were working on it quite fast and quite quietly. So 250 people, you think you're well organized, you've got a plan in action, you've got a host country, but things don't go as planned, do they? I know. Yeah, we had still quite a lot of details to work through, and but literally could have been, this could have been a very different outcome for our community um, had the Taliban taken over a few days later. You know, when people say, when, when, when did you know it was uh, too late? The minute I received a phone call that they had taken over the city, that's when I knew it was um, too late. We were all shocked. Just because it was months before people originally had thought it would happen. Everyone's worst case scenario, everyone's nightmare was that Afghanistan would collapse into another civil war um, and that there would be fight um, for territorial gain in the provinces to uh, use it as a leverage um, during peace negotiations and that Kabul would be somewhat protected and safe and because of the diplomatic corps that was, you know, present in Afghan in Kabul city, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that was uh, comforting for me because my students came from uh, the very provinces where people imagined the fighting would take place. And I knew that those routes um, traveled by my students between Kabul and their home provinces would not be safe. So the study abroad program still was the best scenario for our community, which is why we were prepared. The original plan was that I would take our community of students and faculty and staff and their immediate family members to Rwanda, uh, where they would engage in a study abroad program and they would 
continue with their learning and in a new environment. And and the, and then the plan for me was to um, continue to um, operate from Afghanistan, uh, where we were in the midst of building a campus and hopefully come back not to a rented facility, but rather their permanent home in Kabul City, the boarding school that we were uh, building. So still working on, you know, progress and remaining hopeful about uh, what the future holds. And in, in the midst of all this uncertainty, carving out a space for the idea that uh, investment in girls' education is critical to the success of our country and our nation and, and making that a permanent um, fabric of uh, our society. And that was that was my thought process at that time. You're looking at 250 people that believe in you and you have to get them out of the country at a time when everybody's trying to get out. The initial idea was that we would... Um, go to the airport um, on a day uh, where everyone would get through the gates and the various checkpoints that were put in place and get on a flight um, to originally land in Doha and then from there get on a second flight um, to go to Rwanda. But it didn't go as planned. Um, That initial one day turned into um, an evacuation through the airport over three days. I stayed at the airport um, for those days and making sure that every member of our community that um, wanted to leave with us, leave the country and join us for the study abroad program made it um, safely through the airport. What I heard that is that the airport, getting to the checkpoints, some people were still left outside. You refused to leave. In fact, you organized a trip outside the airport to bring in 40 of these people. That's just such incredible courage. Because you must have been a target. I think part of it is uh, being brought up uh, by a general with the idea of uh, what it means to serve. Um, For me, uh, leadership has always been about service. I, I stayed in Afghanistan willingly. I wanted to be there. I was responsible for the safety of all these uh, community members. They so blindly trusted me. Their families trusted me with the safety of their daughters. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. So today I issue another challenge to the world. Do not look away. As the noise dies down and Afghanistan slips from the front pages, do not look away. My guest today is Shabana Rasij Rasa, and she thinks that we should take education for granted as a right, but equally important, we should take full advantage of the education we're given. I have to believe to the Taliban, you're as much of a threat as insurgents wanting to take them down because you are trying to open minds to possibilities versus close them to what they deem to be proper behavior. Yes, and I'm not the only one. Um, They are faced with thousands of educated women and girls. Some of us find ourselves uh, forced into life in exile, but majority of us are still inside Afghanistan. You look at, uh, since the collapse of Afghanistan to Taliban control, the one group of people who have consistently demonstrated uh, just fearless bravery are girls and women who, knowing that they could be killed because they are protesting and demonstrating publicly, they do not stop. They continue to do that, demanding their access to their basic right, to their Islamic right to education, to their Islamic right to work and earn an income to support their families. 
they will not stop. But with time, you will have more and more young generation of Afghan girls who will be denied the opportunity to receive an education. And that I find really dangerous. And that is um, a great focus of ours, that SOLA as an organization operates in exile uh, outside of Afghanistan. Uh, we have made it our focus not only to make sure that our students are safe, but we're in our second year of admissions, um, recruiting and admitting Afghan girls from the Afghan diaspora community, um, girls who have left Afghanistan recently and find themselves in refugee communities where they aren't able to access proper education and they're able to come to us thanks to a partnership that we have um, put in place with the UN agency, IOM. And they uh, chaperone our students from these refugee communities to us in Rwanda. We have many more initiatives that we'll be announcing in, in the weeks um, to come um, so that we can uh, increase access to education for girls who cannot come to uh, Sola boarding school in Rwanda but remain in Afghanistan and in, in neighboring countries and could benefit from uh, access to quality education. And that is very much our focus. And we know that staying focused on our mission, which was, is, and always will be to educate Afghan girls, is one of the most effective ways in the long, long term to eradicate Taliban and Taliban-like ideology, not just from Afghanistan, but from the region. And in doing so, not just contribute to the prosperity of Afghanistan as a nation, but to the security and safety of the region and our world. You know, I was watching the 60-minute interview and the children in your school are saying, you know, I, I want to lead, teach, become a doctor. One was so adorable when she said, I want to be a spy. And they kept cutting to you and you had such a beautiful smile on your face. You must be just Wondering how this all happened from this girl at age six denied in education to today where, as you say, you're one of many that are going to bring about positive change. Yeah, I uh, remind myself for some people where um, all of this seems like extraordinary. I remind myself and I remind people that I am an ordinary Afghan woman. There are thousands of women like me have always existed, um, never had the platform or the visibility that um, a select few of us uh, have. I think about um, our unsung heroes in Afghanistan. I think about uh, women lawyers who would defend cases of women who were fleeing domestic violence and abuse. And because these lawyers were committed to bringing justice to them, they were being threatened to be killed. Their lifestyle had become changing their cell phone numbers every few weeks and then moving, literally moving from where they were living to another neighborhood to avoid um, being killed. And yet they would never, ever give up. And I think about all of those brave Afghan women then and now and women who don't have the visibility but always exist and are always fighting um, for the right things um, and the right kind of future, not just for girls and women, but everyone in Afghanistan. I know that when I see myself in the midst of all of these brave women, I feel like an ordinary Afghan woman. Are your parents still with you? Yes. They must be so 
proud. They are. And um, they always talk about how their biggest investment in their lives is the great education of their uh, children. And they're very proud of that. But they say that and often um, like a very good typical uh, South Asian parent, um, they uh, don't typically like to um, praise us in front of us. <laughs> so they normally don't say much. But uh, I remember the one of the few times that my father praised me uh, in front of me uh, to others was right after we evacuated um, our community to Rwanda. And he looked at a friend of mine and, and he said, I am a general, but uh, Shabana is a marshal. <laughs> I, I thought that was quite an unexpected but um, incredible comment from my dad, who never liked to say <laughs> those kinds of wonderful things in front of me. That's quite a high compliment. I always end my show with my three takeaways. And the first has actually happened when you were in high school and you were you live day by day. And it's what's interesting to me is how much you're planning for a future. And you're not planning just day by day. It's not just teaching a, a kid geography today. It's about changing the world, changing mindsets, taking on the Taliban. You have such an, a beautiful long-term perspective, but you never lose sight of the importance of, of the day. So I thought that was an interesting one. The second one is just how you view people that have differences. And when you came to the States, you said, I saw that as curiosity. And I think if we opened our mind to that as a, as a mindset, when somebody might be challenging, somebody might be questioning, somebody might be attacking at times, it could also just be curiosity. And if we could find a way to answer that curiosity, I think it'd be better for humanity. And the final thing is just the sense of, you know, we hear about servant leadership and, you know, it's become the next phrase out there, but you truly are a servant leader. You will never accept accolades. Your parents taught you well. You don't like to talk about yourself in any sense of other than I'm just an ordinary woman and have such gratitude for the teachers that could have been beheaded and some probably were, the people that were risking their lives every day just to make this world a better place. So I knew you were going to be a very special guest, but I can tell you I've had goosebumps for the last 45 minutes talking to you and I'm so honored you're, uh, you're part of Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony, for uh, giving me this opportunity. Joining me now is Amanda Devison. She's a commercial banking manager at RBC. Amanda, your first time on Chatter That Matters. Welcome. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm always interested in people's backgrounds and their context. And from what I understand, from what I read about you, you were raised by a single mother with a biracial background, grew up in an environment where people constantly reminded you that you were different. There was a lot of what you call being othered. So tell me a little bit about those times. Yeah, so I grew up in um, a small community in, in Canada. So in a small town in a rural community. And the majority of the population uh, were white Catholics. And my family was a biracial Protestant. So there was lots of uh, chances to kind of be, to stand out and perhaps not in a good way when you're growing up. Uh, and all you want to do is fit in. So um, unfortunately, I had lots of experiences that uh, weren't always the best. But you turned that into a positive. I read somewhere you said this is how you decided to find your voice versus just trying to be, you know, fit in with everybody else's voice. Tell me a little bit about that. For me, I think it shaped me in finding and using my voice from 
kind of an, in an evolutionary perspective. So when I was younger and, and things would happen to me where I was made to feel different, I definitely had the lens of being youthful and hopeful and was just like, oh, once they get to know me, they'll know that's not true or that they're wrong. And um, so I didn't use my voice a lot because again, as younger, I wanted to really fit in. And so you didn't want to call people out or ruffle any feathers. And then as you get older and things keep happening and you start to realize that the majority of people don't really want to get to know you or don't aren't really interested in recognizing that maybe they're wrong, there's a weight that comes with that. I found myself becoming very defensive and reactive. And I would say at that point, I was using my voice too much. When you're someone from a diverse background, there's an emotional tax that you kind of pay when you interact in you kind of interact in these situations and have to defend yourself or other people on a regular basis. It becomes very draining. So I started to become more mindful of my energy levels of when and how I was using my voice and was it benefiting me and other people in general or was it just kind of creating noise? I want to fast forward because I heard something that was quite extraordinary that you just did. It was the 67th United Nations and Commission on the Status of Women Conference and you were there and you were there and with a very strong voice. Tell me a little bit about it. I, could, I wish people could see your smile because this must be an amazing <laughs> time in your life. Uh, it was it was incredible. And I don't even know that there's the right words to describe what that was like. And so I led a delegation of 20 women to the United Nations for the Commission on the Status of Women. And people are open-minded and willing to kind of have those tough conversations. And what does that look like? And if there was a place to really understand and get a pulse on what is it like to be a woman globally? Like that is the place. That's the epicenter of diplomacy, right? You have progressive countries and oppressive countries. And the ideal is that they're coming together to try to find some common ground of how they're going to make the lives of women better in their home countries. So Stephen Hewitt, who works corporate communications at RBC, was the one that told me about you. So I guess RBC must be pretty proud that you left your Simon banking and went off and did this. But it seems to be something they support. Oh, 100%. I give tons of credit to RBC for allowing me to be, I can bring my full self to work. I can be myself. I can speak up for women's rights. I'm the co-chair of the Atlantic Women's uh, Employee Resource Group. I'm involved with the Canadian Federation of Business and Professional Women. And they allowed, like they embraced and fully supported me to take this journey to the United Nations. And they really create those, those areas as well in terms of environments where you can have these conversations. And whether it's through the Employee Resource Group or otherwise, like, the amount of support and openness they're approaching a variety of of diversity. So not just women, but people in all their diversity. There's really spaces for you there and you can use your voice and you can speak up and be supported. They want to listen and they want to get better. Amanda Davidson, you started off wondering if you're going to have anxiety over doing this interview. You were sensational. <laughs> and I want you to come back time and time again and chatter that matters. Is that is that an offer you might take? It's a date. <laughs> okay. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.